Well, good morning. They are very confronting, aren't they? Listen to these last words of Hosea 2. Verse 13, it says, I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewellery and went after her lovers, but me she forgot. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we pray that you'd be with us, especially this morning, looking at a pretty difficult part of the Bible. And difficult, Lord, because sometimes your ways are hard for us to grasp. And, um, and Lord, also difficult because we know that we're not perfect and we know that we get it wrong. And so, Lord, please forgive us. Lord, we, uh, we pray that you'd help us to understand your word and help us to see uh, your ways are right and not ours. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have in my hand here, here it is, the laws of the game, 2015. These are the rules of the game of soccer. Now, I was quite surprised this is quite a thin book. I was thinking a much bigger book. I did want to get my hands on, for the purpose of this little illustration, I wanted to get my hands on the, um, the laws of NFL, because apparently the, the rule book for NFL is about twice the size of an average Bible. They're massive things. Anyway, not to worry, I want to read you a very... This is pretty good reading if you're into this sort of stuff, this rule book. Uh, yeah, some of the, you know, I won't mention any names, but uh, some people love this sort of thing. Okay, um, let me give you an example of a law or a rule from this rule book that I think you might enjoy. Um, for example, did you know that under Section 12, Fouls and Misconduct, Celebration of a Goal, you can receive, I'm going to read it out in a minute, you can receive a yellow card, that's like a caution, if you, pull, if you take your shirt off in the celebration of a goal, you take your shirt off or you pull it up over your face. There you go. That, you can get ready to receive a yellow card for that. That is unsport. I'm told, this is uh, not reading from it just yet, that is unsportsmanlike behaviour and it falls under the rule. Here we go. A player must be cautioned if he covers... I think I've got it up here, actually. If he covers his head or face with a mask or a similar item. How about that? So you are not allowed to bring a mask onto the soccer field. Just like that one up there. You can't really see it, really, but there's Jim Carrey in his finest. Um, well, that, that's uh, <laughs> interesting stuff, maybe. I don't know. Um, a lot of people actually think that when it comes to relating to God, they think God is a little like, like the rule book. God's just the, the rule book. It's just a book. And when, when, we, when we break the rules or when we sin, well, it's nothing really personal. It's just the rule book. I'm not, God's not really offended or anything. It'd be weird, wouldn't it, for a moment, if, if the referee said to the team committing all the fouls, oh, come on, guys, this is really hurting me. It's really, you're really offending me. You're hurting, you're hurting my feelings when you're offside so often. That'd be a bit weird, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> we might come up to the ref and we might go, mate, I think it's time to hang up the whistle. Be a little strange. Sometimes, though, we can be like this when it comes to relating to God and sin, that God is not personally affected. It's a legal thing. You know, uh, it's like breaking the law. It's nothing personal. 
It's much more comfortable thinking about sin in that way, isn't it? Sin in that way. Less personal, the better. It keeps God at a nice distance, a nice socially acceptable distance. The problem is, though, when we, as we continue reading through Hosea, and indeed the rest of the Bible, just as marriage, just as marriage is deeply personal, and hence the, the, the metaphor of God and his people in Hosea, uh, God uh, and his wife, the wife, um, Hosea, the wife, the unfaithful wife, just as marriage is deeply personal, just as separation or unfaithfulness in marriage is deeply personal, the Bible says sin, our rejection of God is deeply personal, it's relational. Sin is not just breaking God's law, it's breaking God's heart. And we misunderstand God's grace when we, do, when we, are, when we forget this, our salvation. If you're a Christian person, you trust in the Lord Jesus. Yes, a believer is justified, that's a legal term. Okay, that we're pronounced not guilty by the death of Jesus who died in our place. He died as a substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous. But salvation is not just a legal transfer, it's an act of love. God is betrayed by our sin. God is betrayed by our unfaithfulness, we learnt last week, our infidelity like Israel, the unfaithful wife. Now, you and I don't respond very well to, well, at least I don't, I'm about you, but I don't respond very well to, to betrayal. I really don't like it that much. Um, I resent it, let's just say. And sometimes I'm, ever, eh, I'm a bit angry over it. There's a bit of spite there, in, in fact. I, that's not God. God's not like that. God responds with mercy and forgiveness. He's not some impartial, distant judge up there somewhere unmoved by what happens down here god is a jilted lover he feels our betrayal and he's passionate about his people so much so that he pursues them he pursues them even he pursues us even in our sinfulness so let's get to this uh, first part of chapter 2 in hosea now, you know that you should come to church every week. But I tell you what, you really got to come next week. <laughs> All right? Um, you really should come because really this is a two-part thing going on. Here's part one. Part one's pretty... It, it, it's pretty challenging. Uh, part two is a wonderful, wonderful uh, story of God's pursuit of us, his people. So, we'll get a bit of that today. But um, let's look at the first part of uh, chapter 2 in Hosea. It's page 889 on the Church Bibles, if you want to look it up. Have your Bibles open. It's very helpful to do that. You've got to make sure that I, what I'm saying is what God's Word is saying. That's your job as well as listening and so on. Very important. And the outline is there as well in the bulletin. That's always helpful if you want to jot some things down. Let me tell you about one other thing that we're going to do uh, as much as I've got the guts to do it um, in, um, at this service. At the end of each sermon, I'm going to give us an opportunity to ask a question, all right? Now, what's going to happen after that? I'm going to write the question down, and I'm going to take it to a filing cabinet over in my office, and I'm going to leave it there for about three years. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm going to try to answer the question to the best of my ability, 
okay? Uh, sometimes I mightn't be able to answer the question. Um, sometimes I'll be able to answer it and that'll be good. Sometimes I might say, you know what, I'm going to leave it with you, I'm going to come back next week. The other thing you can do, so as you listen along to the sermon, what you can do is um, uh, I jot down a question and then raise your hand at the end. I think that's just how we'll do it. But if you don't want to raise your hand um, and if you don't want to ask it publicly, well then write it on the comment card. This comment card's very useful. Um, you can write lots of things on the comment card, but write it on there. And then you can, if you'd like, put it in the offertory bag as it comes around later on. Or you can put it in the new white box at the back of the building there. It is a very impressive white box. Look at it. Rod's holding it up. Look, it's even got a latch. It is fantastic. So um, we have very gifted people at our church, Adrian Avery. And Adrian made that wonderful box. And um, Sorry, Adrian. Uh, and I thank you for that. So put it in there if you want to, and then um, I'll look at it during the week and get back to you. Okay. That's pretty straightforward. Let's go to Hosea 2. Well, in this section of Hosea 2, uh, beginning really at verse 2, the Lord pleads, rebukes, but pleads to the children of Israel, individuals, faithful individuals within Israel, about their mother. So he sort of switched up the, the metaphor a little bit. So instead of Israel being the, the bride, the wife, well, now Israel's the mother. And God is pleading with the faithful children of Israel in amongst Israel about their mother, national Israel. So if you like, it's a little like a husband and wife and because of the state of their marriage, I don't know, maybe not, that they use the kids to communicate to each other. Okay? It's not quite go and ask your father, um, or go and ask your mother and back and forth it goes and then the kids will just forget. It's not quite that, but it's, it's uh, because of the poor state of their marriage, they use the, the children to go and communicate to, them, to, the, uh, to each other. So in, in departing from the Lord, we heard that phrase last week in chapter 1, she, Israel, is not my wife, the Lord says, and I am not her husband. The sentiment is something like this. It's as if she's not my wife. She's not acting like my wife. And so what follows in chapter 2, as we keep reading, is God pleading with Israel, rebuking Israel, really, warning her, pursuing her to, to come back to her faithful husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. And so as Israel pursues her lovers, underlying her adultery, we actually find two very sad realities. And you can see them there in your outline. Israel has forgotten the blessings God has given. And the second is that Israel misunderstands the blessings God gives. Let's look at that first reality. In verses 3 and 4, refer, they refer back to the great rescue of God's people in, from slavery in Egypt, and the wanderings in the desert and then the, the, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. Verse 3's warning takes Israel back to her bare beginnings as a nation. Israel entered the world, she was born with nothing. She became a nation with nothing. They were slaves in Egypt. 
So just as a baby enters the world with nothing, and you see the analogy there in verse 3, so God's warning is that, that he will remove Israel's blessing so that Israel will again have nothing. She will be stripped naked. So in these words, God actually takes Israel back to that point, that point when Israel was given an identity in slavery, in Egypt, in the wanderings in the desert. That's when they got, was, were given their identity by God's powerful hand. They were God's rescued people, his chosen people, given the law to be set apart from other nations, holy, God's covenant people. Covenant just means promise, God's promised people. But Israel had forgotten what God had done. Israel was not God's wife and God was not her husband. They'd forgotten their identity. Israel was not living as God's faithful wife. So God will rewind the story and take them back there, strip her naked, so to bring her back. Let's jump ahead about 800 years. We, we read that a Christian's identity is as, as important as ever. As we heard in our weekend away, we studied the book of Ephesians. We are to be, it's Ephesians 5 verse 1, we are to be imitators of God as his beloved children, loved by God, set apart for him, chosen, called, our identity in Christ. Now, it's a little different when we think of identity in the world around us. So the world around us defines identity as, as really that, in other words, who we are. Who we are arises out of what we do. Isn't that right? It, it even comes about when we introduce ourselves. Oh, what do you do? Uh, I'm a, I'm a, and then we have an identity, it seems. So I'm a successful person, say, because, uh, or I'm a successful person if I succeed. I'm a good mother if I've got good children. I'm an Olympian because I've gone to the Olympics. I'm an attractive person if I'm cool. But the mercy of God turns this sort of thinking upside down. In the world around us, our identity is achieved, isn't it? In the gospel, it's generously given. It's given to us in Jesus Christ. And as a result, our, our gospel activity, how we live that out, and what we do, arises out of who we are, our identity. God has made me a good person, in fact, perfect in his sight, God says, under God. Perfect in his sight because of Jesus' death for me. So in response, in response to God making me good in his eyes, I'm not perfect, obviously, I sin and so forth, but in response to God making me good in his eyes, forgiving me, uh, making me righteous is the word in the Bible, I do good things. Michelle and I are keen to grow some lemons. I'll leave it there. Um, <laughs> but it's not going to work if I sneak out in the middle of the night and get some sticky tape and sticky tape lemons to the dogwood tree in the back garden. And then in the morning I celebrate with Michelle. Michelle, we've got lemons. Yes, we've got lemons. Look at them. She'll go, what are you, are you stupid? Um, probably would say something like that, actually. It doesn't work. To get lemons, we need a lemon tree. Uh, if a tree is a lemon tree, 
it's going to produce lemons. Now, in the same way, my good works, my fruit, as the Bible calls good works, uh, they actually don't make me who I am. Instead, they're a natural expression. They grow out of who I am. They grow out of my identity as a result of God's work in my life. You can't make yourself a good person by sticky-taping good works to your life. We're starting the wrong way. But if you're united to Christ, if you put your trust in Him, He's your Lord and Saviour, then out of that, out of that identity of being right with God, righteous with Him, out of that, then you'll produce good works. Israel had forgotten their identity. They had forgotten what God had done for them. In pursuing their lovers... They had forgotten God's goodness to them. But two, second on the outline there, point two, Roman numerals two, they also misunderstand their present blessings. So you see halfway through verse five? She or Israel, the Lord says, uh, says I will, sorry, sorry, she or Israel said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Pause on that just for a moment, those words. I will go after my lovers who give me those things. Israel had gone after her lovers, in this case the Baals, the fertility gods, claiming that it was them who provided for them. Food, water, linen, oil, drink, life. In verse 12, it's just as explicit. Israel's vines and fig trees were her pay from her lovers, the false gods. Verse 8, she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. Verse 8 says, God is the one who provides. God alone. I was the one. In the Hebrew, it's, it's emphatic. It's like you're putting capital letters in bold and raise it about 20 fonts. I was the one. God is the one who sustains life and gives it. It's like the devoted husband who, who wraps up, uh, saves up, wraps up and buys a beautiful diamond necklace for his wife and places it under the Christmas tree and then the wife on Christmas Day opens up the present and concludes it's a gift from her lover she's having an affair with. That's what's going on. That is Israel. Friends, sin is deeply personal to God. Look at verse 13. She decked herself with rings and jewellery and went after her lovers, but me she forgot. So who is it that sustains and gives life? So yeah, I, re- I heard during the week, um, worth asking this question in response, are we a successful nation simply because of our Western liberal democratic values? Is that why Australia is Australia? We have the freedoms we have and the wealth we have? Hmm. I don't know. Is my, is, is, someone might say, is my successful career due to the fact that I've worked hard and I've shown initiative? We say to our young people, get a good education and that'll set you up for life. I've sacrificed so much for this holiday, I deserve this. 
Now, there's, there's of course, truth in all these things, uh, all these statements and these questions, but, but God is the one who gives life and sustains it. As Paul was preaching to the, uh, the, the pagans in, in, um, in Athens, the Arapagus, uh, they were worshipping an unknown God, literally bowing down. And, and, and Paul debates with these people about that. And this is what he says. Look at this last line, but I'll read from verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live by, in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives himself... He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Everything we have, everything we have is given to us by God alone. God alone, it's from God alone. We, we pray a prayer sometimes in, the, um, in this service, a prayer of thanksgiving. I really like it actually. It says, uh, we thank God for life and health and safety, for work and rest and friendship and for the wonder of creation. It's a good prayer. It's a good thing to thank God for. Everything we have is given, given to us from God. Our careers, our bank balances, our families, our houses, everything we have is a gift from God. So how do we respond? And maybe the question too is, how did Israel not respond? But how should we respond? Well, of course, we, we know this. Thankfulness to God's, for God's blessings and generosity to others. God has given us so much. How to respond? Thankfulness and generosity. Now, one of the things I love about this church, and lots of things, um, is that this has been exemplified time and time again, that when a need arises, that need is met with generosity. And let me just say it, quickly. <laughs> quickly. It's great. This is a generous church whom God has given generously. It's a wonderful thing. And I'm so thankful to be part of it. Thank you very much. Um, it's really good. Thankfulness and generosity. The great sadness of Israel is that they had neither, neither thankfulness or generosity. Therefore, look at verse 9, it comes up in verse 6 as well. Therefore, now of course, whenever we see a therefore, we ask, what is the therefore, therefore? So, therefore, point two on our outline, God will pursue his bride. This has got to come as a surprise, don't you think, at this point? Of all that Israel is doing and done, God actually will pursue his bride in a very surprising way and a difficult way by withdrawing his blessings. Let me give, you, give to you three scenarios, three different people. There's Jeff. Now, Jeff, Jeff says, I'm devastated. I've given everything to my career and now they've made me redundant. Brigitte. Brigitte says, I value my, my friendships more than anything. Now all I feel is loneliness. Everyone's just so busy, they say. And there's Susie. I tell you why I'm stuck in this abusive relationship. I've prayed and prayed and prayed for a husband, and God won't give me one. So here I am. I don't know, perhaps, perhaps you've felt something similar, that you felt let down and not blessed. God has not kept his side of the bargain. But could it be that these struggles are in fact a sign of God's love toward them? That their problems are a blessing in disguise? So let's, let's look with me at 
if you can, it's pretty hard, but look at verse 6 and then at verses 9 to 13 at the same time. Can you do that? Of course you can do that. I'm going to have verses 9 and 13 up here, but look at this. I will block. I will take away. I will expose, the Lord says. I will stop. I will ruin. I will punish, says the Lord God. You don't have to read it all through. You can see it all there. I will. I will. I will. This is what God will do. God will pursue his unfaithful bride. God, in his passion for his people, will pursue his wayward bride by withdrawing blessing. Withdrawing his blessings. Strange as it may seem, God sometimes blesses us by removing his blessings. He prevents us from finding satisfaction in other lovers. He pleads, remember, rebukes. He wants to bring us back to our senses. Why? Because he wants us to recognize not only that blessings come from him, but that he himself is the true great blessing. Desiring him is the great blessing. Now the reality was that Israel was not interested in God. Israel was more interested in food and wealth and possessions. We see that there and what God had taken away or God will take away. If, if Baal looked like the better option, well, I'm going to go with Baal, said, said Israel. If returning to God looked like bringing in more stuff, more food, more wine, more good things, well, then God it is. Look at verse 7. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. She will, she, then she will say, I'll go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. That's the better option. Israel didn't want God. Israel just wanted stuff, things. Israel just wanted blessings. Israel's like the gold digger woman who marries a man for his wealth. When another man comes along who promises more wealth, well, she goes with him. But when his wealth runs out, she runs back to the first husband. Whom does she love? Neither. The reality is she never loved her husband and she doesn't love a lover. She only loved herself. That's Israel. God, wanted Israel. God wants Israel to look, look beyond his blessings to God himself. But Israel kept looking beyond God to the blessings that God had given. This is the message that Jeff and Brigitte and Susie need to hear. See, Jeff's made an idol of his career. Bridget, uh, Brigitte has made an idol of friendships. And Susie has made an idol of marriage. Now, they're all good things. But when something matters more to us than God, it's become an idol. We look beyond God to his blessings. And the evidence is, of this idolatry is when those good things are taken away... Uh, see Jeff is devastated Brigitte is angry and lonely and Susie is bitter none of them are actually satisfied in God God is just a way for them to get what they want he's just a means to an end but God won't bless our idols uh, and our worship of them like Jeff, Brigitte and Susie he may even strip us 
of those blessings so that we can pursue him. For God is the ultimate blessing. Desiring him, knowing him, living for him is the ultimate blessing above and beyond any of the blessings that he gives us. Friends, God is a, is a jealous God and he's very generous which makes our rejection of him even more personal. So let's pursue him, desire him, not for his blessings, but for him alone. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we, um, we thank you for the so many blessings you give us. And really, uh, we too often we just take them for granted. Many people in the world don't have the luxuries that we have. Lord, we thank you for the, just in this building here, we have somewhere where it's warm, we have people who love us, where it's safe, we have a roof over our heads, we have a nice morning tea to look forward to. Lord, we thank you for your blessings. Please, Lord, help us not to forget you. Uh, we don't want to be what, it, what Israel did. And so, uh, Lord, we, we pray for your help with that. Lord, we thank you that, um, that you deal with our sin and you love us so much that you pursued us to the extent that you gave us your son to die for us, Jesus, who died in our place. Lord, may we put our trust in him and live for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.